Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire. The Chasing Shadows live stream with special guest A.D.D. Hi, everyone. Sounds like I'm going to be having to do a lot of talking on this one, doesn't it? Okay, guys. Uh, so I, I know you can't hear LML. He's just been talking in my ear, so I can hear him, so I can sort of interpret. Uh, but what I thought I would do was uh, was just, uh, why don't we kick off by just saying hello to a few people in the chat, because I see there's a lot of people, a lot of conversation all going on. Uh, so, uh, who's going, sorry, you're going through so quickly that there's been a lot of love for, uh, Viseria Sunbreaker's name, uh, uh, and, uh, a great comment that I'm going to be playing both the part of himself and LML this afternoon. So yeah, this is true. I will tell you when I'm being LML, I'll take off my glasses and I'm going to sound very intelligent. And then I'm going to come back and be me like this. So uh, anyway, uh, hi, hi out to uh, Emilio. Uh, I see you've already done a super chat, actually, which uh, which uh, I'm sure we're going to get to in a moment. It was a really interesting question. Um, uh, Bubba Husky's there. Hi. Uh, good to see you. Emma Smith, Thunderclap. Uh, Chrissy of Oldstones. Hi. Great to see you as well. And uh, AU Packmule, who I was on a live stream with yesterday over on uh, Justin Thomas' show. Uh, about Westworld uh, and as I've got all of your captive attention I should do a quick plug for Westworld if you have not seen Westworld you should, it is amazing it's going to be starting the 22nd of this month season 2 uh, and uh, I'm going to be covering it on my channel so that's my quick plug as LML can't stop I th- me I think I might be live now guys tell me uh, Tell me if you can hear me oh there <laughs> They're requesting horns, Robert. If you're going to, <laughs> if you're going to carry the show here, you got to wear the horns. Are saying, I, 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 uh... there you go. So you promo the Westworld thing. Go ahead and say, uh, give me like a minute or two on a couple of your biggest videos. I know a lot of my people are familiar with your stuff, but I'm sure there are some people that may not be. And I'm a big fan of your work, so I don't know. Mention the Crips or your Kyburn video or anything you're jazzed up about. Sure. So uh, just for those who don't know my channel, I do, as well as Westworld, uh, a lot of my time I focus in on Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I, At the moment, I'm doing two different types of videos uh, there. I'm doing what I call my Traveler's Guide to Westeros, where I'm moving around from place to place, and I'm kind of trying to introduce uh, the different... At the moment, I'm going through to the north, so I'm doing the, the, the Dreadfort and the Carhold, and just spending a few minutes trying to interact with a place as if we're actually going there so not just sort of trying to describe the history but trying to uh, describe what the feel of a place is and and, and what what you know if, if we know what it smells like if we know you know how many people there are these kinds of things uh, so that's uh, that's something every friday i do a new traveler's guide video and then I try and do uh, theory videos, which uh, which are a little bit longer, a little bit more in depth. So, of the ones that uh, you sort of name checked uh, a couple uh, there, uh, thank you. So, the 
uh, one that I did quite recently was about uh, the Horn of Winter and the Crypts of Winterfell. And that was setting out um, a theory I had, as I say, most of the components of the theory lots of other people have come up with before, but I just tried to tie together a few different things to try and work out what is it that the Horn of Winter actually does and uh, where is it and things like that. And it starts from this idea that uh, if we take this horn that Sam has and if we say that may well be the Horn of Winter, it's it's noticeable that the word which is used to describe that, it's not working, it's described as being broken. And uh, there is a character at that time in history, it's obviously legend, so we have to take these things with quite a pinch of salt, but uh, the, the, the character closely associated with that horn, Brandon mm-hmm. the Breaker, So if you put these things together and say, okay, so perhaps the thing or one of the things that Brandon broke was this horn. Uh, And then you can try and work through why might he have broken this? uh, What could the horn have done? uh, And what purpose has it got? And and for me, that trail all leads around to the crypts uh, at Winterfell that I think, uh, I think, uh, spoiler alert, but I think that the role of the Horn of Winter is to uh, to be blown and to raise the sleeping Starks to fight for uh, humanity, as it were, uh, against uh, the others. So that's that's my theory. It's it's obviously a little bit more detailed than that, but uh, I try and come up with with things that are hopefully seeing. Uh, ideas that you've seen before but from slightly different angles so at the moment i've just started uh, doing a short series on bran and on blood raven so there'll be one coming out on blood raven tomorrow just trying to oh. tie up so all of the different things that he has probably been doing over the last few years and so just uh i want to i want to comment actually uh, specifically on the horn thing because it's gonna I'm going to do a Horn of Winter episode in the Blood of the Utter, uh, Utter, <laughs> Blood of the Utter. Oh, boy. I'm glad we're not on Twitter. Uh, so <laughs> the Blood of the Other um, series is going to have a Horn of Winter episode uh, because I've got some, a lot of ideas about the horns, and it seems to tie into the general idea of an impending ice moon disaster of some kind. Um, and, of course, all the horn blowing seems fairly apocalyptic, as everyone's picked up on. Uh, But to go back to your specific thing, uh, one of my favorite points that you make in the Horn of Winter series uh, is the idea of the broken horn. Uh, It's 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 chipped itself a little bit, but it's you you point out that uh, John refers to it as a broken horn. But physically, it's not described as cracked, only chipped, which doesn't really sound like a major piece of physical damage. And yet it doesn't make any sound. And it's called broken. And of course, all of my folks, you know, know there's a lot of broken sword symbolism revolving around the last hero, and a lot of people that play Azor high like Barrack, his sword breaks. Ned's sword is split in half, so that's kind of a sword breaking. And there's a lot of sword breaking. The Titan of Bravos has a broken sword, and of course he toots a big horn-like blast every morning and evening to herald the sunrise and sunset, which is of course like standard Morning Star stuff. So the the broken sword is a really important symbol, and to find a broken horn that's specifically broken in some sort of more like esoteric, symbolic way and not literally broken, to me that really uh, set off an alarm bell in my head. And then, like I said, the Titan of Bravos, 
we've identified as basically a symbol of Azor Ahai. So there's one version of the Azor Ahai Reborn prophecy, Robert, uh, that Stannis refers to. And he, it's something that Melisandre said to him. He's like, ah, bloody blada, bleeding stars, a hero reborn from the sea, who knows, you know. And it's like, oh, a hero reborn from the sea. It's a little detail of the Azor High prophecy that's not anywhere else. And so the whole Titan uh, Bravos story is that when Bravos is in need, he like wades out into the water and does battle, right? So hmm. he's got a whole bunch of symbolism. The broken sword, like I said, which is similar to the last hero's broken sword. And then the main thing is that Morning Star function, where he, t- it's not called a horn blast, but it's some bellowing, you know, loud sound. And he does it sunrise and sunset, which is, means he's playing the role of Lightbringer, Even Star, and Morning Star. And then when Arya is sailing towards the Titan, uh, his eyes look like a star that then becomes two stars as she gets closer. So you have the idea of the splitting sword right there as well. So to find uh, the horn symbolism, he doesn't have the horn, but he's got the bellow, which I consider part of the horn symbolism, together with the broken sword, means that the broken horn and the broken sword go together. And in fact, they're really just the same thing. And that's why we have um, a sword called Widow's Whale, which is a sword named after a sound. So think about this, Robert. You're familiar with my basic... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've listened to every episode of mine, but you've listened to enough to where you've got the, the basic gist of it. So you know that the comet that stabs the moon can be considered a dragon because comets are like dragons. And so the dragons have horns and dragon horns have also been turned into musical horns. So think about this. All right. You can think about the dragon horns of the comet puncturing the moon, stabbing the moon. Right. So that's one way in which the horn breaks the moon. But at the same time, in the Azor High myth, it's actually Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy that leaves a crack across the face of the moon, which means that we have the idea of sound breaking the moon. Sound that's emitted during a blood magic ritual. Okay? And so, if there's a whole line of symbolism, which I'm going to get into in that episode, where Nissa Nissa's cry is likened to a horn blast... And so you have these horn sounds like, oh, it's, well, it's, I guess it's the most obvious when Euron blows Dragonbinder. It's described as a shivering hot scream, which is like an ice and fire scream. And it's described as a sword. It split the air like a sword thrust. So you've got yeah. a sound that's described as a scream and a sword. And then we have Nissa Nissa's scream, which broke the moon. But we also have a comet breaking the moon, which is, again, like a sword. And then you have Widow's Whale, the sword, named after a scream. And so it's this round robin of symbolism of screams and horns and swords that are all compared to each other. And it's, it's like a, a multifaceted metaphor for the puncturing of the moon that starts to incorporate sound. And that's one of the reasons why I think sound has a lot to do with like the end of the world, signaling the last battle, and sort of ties into your idea of waking the Stark dead. So. I think it does. And I think, I mean, the, I just add a couple of things onto that is uh, one thing I, I'm always fascinated by uh, with the Azor Ahai myth and also the, to a lesser degree, the, the last hero myth is that it's a lot about the sword, but the sword it's the focus is not on the sword being used to kill uh, the, you know, another or to, to, to take on the Night's King or whatever. It's the, the focus is on the bit that happens before, as you say, with the, the sword piercing the heart and all the rest of it. Um, 
uh, and it's almost as if the weapon is not about the actual use of it, the killing. So the the horn that we've got, uh, the horn of winter, is the, the 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 main mechanism that we are shown for how uh, the the knights king's rule was ended. Uh, th- this was uh, so we get that, and the uh, raising giants from the earth is that this seems to be the thing which actually seems to end his rule. So actually, yes, there might well have been fighting going on. But that's almost off stage in all of these kind of uh, histories and legends that we have. Uh, what is actually important is not, as you say, it's not the sword, it's the sound that we get coming out. Um, so that was one point. And the other one was just to, sort of, just to pick up uh, something you said a little bit earlier. And I know that there's a lot, uh, particularly the, the two episodes that we're sort of talking about today, there, you did a lot of references to do with Lord of the Rings. And I think one of the the most glaringly obvious references is the John and Sam uh, 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 allegory, the, 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 the how they're very similar to Frodo and Sam. Mm. Uh, and in this, uh, it's it's very noticeable that whereas John may have uh, the the sword, Sam will have the horn. And whereas in Lord of the Rings, you find that although we see Frodo as the protagonist, the actual hero turns out to be Sam. And I'm wondering whether that same kind of mechanism might be starting to come through here, is that whereas we're thinking about how's John going to get one of his swords, which sword is it he's going to use, what's Mm -hmm. what's he going to do with this sword, perhaps actually, although he clearly is one of the main protagonists in this drama, maybe the hero who we should be rooting for is Sam, and he's going to be doing the fundamental thing, like Sam carried Frodo up the last uh, a few steps. Maybe well, there's Sam's- also uh, the Norse mythology angle where Sam correlates to, uh, oh God, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's it's like Heimdaller, Heim something. Heimdall, yeah. Heimdall. So he's the guy that blows the horn at the at the last battle, right, at Ragnarok? Uh, he is, and he's also the one who knows everything that's going on in the same way that Sam is the, the great gatherer of knowledge. Right. There you go. Oh, hey, Zora Hype. What's going on? Hey, buddy. Hey, way, hey. I've been looking at the chat a little bit. Um, obviously, I've been trying to get everything working here, so I've, I'm definitely going to have to watch back on this one. I'm seeing a lot of really funny comments in the chat here. So, uh, all There, in, there all was... Sorry to interrupt. There was, right, you go scroll all the way to the beginning. Uh, one of my patrons, I noticed, uh, Emilio, did do a super chat right almost before we started, which oh, with well, a question, you. which you might want to go all the way back and let's uh, do. Let's thank him and then see whether we can answer it. Yeah, we like to make a habit of thanking people. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't. Oh, I joined in too late. Can you scroll back and get it? Uh, yeah, I'm sure I can. Uh, and just while I'm doing that scrolling, uh, in terms of Norse mythology, I've just uh, been reading... Uh, I'm not sure if I can get all the way to the top. Uh, I've just been reading Neil Gaiman's book, Norse Mythology, that uh, I would highly recommend if you just want... I've uh, had a couple of people recommend uh, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Easy, easy to read, but brilliantly written. Um, uh, so, Emilio, I can't I can't scroll back to see your, your question. Yeah. It was something along the lines of... There are some specific looks 
uh, and the different houses in uh, across Westeros. We get mm. the Starks have got their long, mm-hmm. long sort of drawn out face. Obviously, mm. there's the hair, there's the eye colours that we have in different things. Um, and the question was, to what extent are these um, uh, reflective of the sort of the, the where the family started and where they came from? Well, I think this is probably exaggerated you know, more so than real life in order just as a sort of fantasy convention, because I talk about archetypes a lot. Each, each, George is treating each house like an archetype. I think it's nowhere more clear than when you look, meet the laughing storm in Duncan egg and then compare him to Robert. And it's the laughing storm is a, is a different Baratheon, you know, from a couple generations earlier. And it's, he's like the same dude. It's just like meeting young Robert, you know? And so I think that essentially what George is doing is he's using those consistent looks, uh, like all the Lannisters' hair is gold. It's not, it's, don't call it blonde, you know, it's gold. Everybody, gold hair, you know, it's like, okay, okay, we got it. It's, it's, uh, it's just to create the archetype because they're all about the gold and the rock and the mining. And so it's, it's kind of over the top, but I think that um, it gives the characters, it makes them distinctive. You know, he's got so many point of views and so many tertiary characters He's copied the real world convention of how people have different name variants like Eldrick and Elric and Elric and Eddard and, you know, all the different Branda and Brendan and Brendan and Brandon. So it's really easy to get lost with all those characters. And by keeping all by keeping the Lannisters distinctly Lannister and the Baratheons very Baratheon, it sort of makes it a little easier to sort of feel like, you know, these characters. So. That's what I would say. It's mostly a fantasy convention. But at the same time, um, before the Targaryens unified the Seven Kingdoms, there probably was a lot less intermarriage from, say, northern houses to houses in the Reach or the Westerlands or anywhere else. I think it's really only with the unification that we started to see more of that intermarriage and more. they built the... The, the roads, the highways that didn't, the King's Road that didn't used to exist, for example, that would have mean like to get to the south from the north, you have to literally just trek through the neck or take a, take a ship. And taking ships was probably a lot more dicey when you didn't have the King's peace to enforce justice. So what I'm saying is that it would have been more isolated. The people in the north would have been only breeding with each other. And even within the north, those little areas would have stayed more isolated and more pocketed and so i think the distinctive looks carrying on is a little bit it's a little bit realistic you know yeah i think i'd agree with that completely i think the we forget in our kind of very interconnected world quite how much of a a trek it was to even go 20 miles particularly when you think in the north with the the, the winters they've got got there so so the mixing of people was a lot uh, a lot less prevalent than it is in today's world um and uh, I exactly. think it's, it makes it a lot easier for the storytelling. Um, and I think actually, if you just look in the world, uh, around the world today, there's, there's certainly uh, some traits that we can see in areas uh, so people who come from more Viking descent are much more likely to have sort of red hair, for example, and things like that. So it's uh, so these things are quite normal. And if you get uh uh, intermarriage in such a uh, or or marriage within a, a, a family in such a strong way that say the Targaryens do then yes of course you're going to have a very very tight little gene pool that's not going to allow much variation going on there it is so and I just want to say real quick guys if there's anybody who asked 
what you consider to be a real good question, and we didn't get it yet because I wasn't really looking at the chat at the beginning. Feel free to post it again, um, you know, at some point through here, and okay, that's one way to do it. Uh, hey, Searing Abyss, thanks for the uh, Christmas present there, buddy. That's very generous of you. Would I ever consider branching out and covering more topics like other books or mythologies? Uh, well, thanks. That is very flattering. He says he would like to see more from me. I have thought about different things. Um, I would never, first of all, is I would never do anything that takes away from what I'm doing with mythical astronomy. So it, I'd have to be able to add on to that. And I don't, I'm not to the point where I've got extra time for that. Um, I'm looking forward to potentially doing more Lord of the Rings stuff. Blue Tiger is a wealth of information. So is Joe Magician and a few other folks on Twitter. And as I'm going to show you in a second, Robert, um, we've got a lot of nice feedback that I've put in the notes here of people that are, are asking for more Lord of the Rings. There was only there was only a couple people killing me for calling Turin a man. That's why I had to make that joke <laughs> at the beginning of the other podcast. Uh, they, there was a couple of people that did roast me over the coals a little bit, but that's okay. I, I do like to get the pronunciations right. And, uh, you know, like anytime – I love Emmett, but every time he says Egan, like – Egan, like I'm Egan cars. It kills me. Like I, it just kills me. When I see him at Con of Thrones, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab him by the shirt and be like, Aegon, like Sargon, Aegon. That's all right. Though. <laughs> so I don't That's... mind if people killed me for calling Turn a man or so. It's um, it's not. I said Kenya. It's Quenya, not like the country Kenya, the elf language that Tolkien made up. It's Quenya. So. There's a couple yeah. others that I butchered, but I'm sure we'll get that right. Oh yeah, I said so, I said Fenor. It's uh, it's Feanor. So thanks. So says Lucifer means lightbringer. Yes, lightbringer. Lightbringer. I type it. I usually type it. <laughs> so quit egging me on. Exactly. In any case, uh, there is more. There is call for more Lord of the Rings stuff, and there's a lot more Lord of the Rings influences in A Song of Ice and Fire, and a lot of them are from the Silmarillion as opposed to Lord of the Rings proper which is a little more covert way of taking from Tolkien. Um, and I really think that uh, George Martin, something that writers will be studying in the future is the way that he does backstory in such an efficient manner. Like he almost doesn't even need to write the Silmarillion because of the way he hides the backstory through his folklore and symbolism and mythology and stuff. I often tell people that imagine if Lord of the Rings had the broad strokes of the Silmarillion like encoded into the story in mythical parallels. That's almost what we're reading in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's not just the current story, but there's this whole story about the Dawn Age events and these heroic characters from the Age of Heroes that's being told covertly through all these symbolic and metaphorical scenes. And that's kind of the treasure hunt that we're on with my podcast. You know, like, for example, and, and I was going to ask you this, Robert, the blood of the other theory is really simple and it's been kicking around the fandom for a long time which is that you know if monster is a child that was supposed to be turned into another but wasn't and was stolen well maybe that happened you know with the original knights king and queen who were quote sacrificing to the others so i just wanted to ask you just like thirty thousand foot view what do you what do you think of that general idea is it something you thought about before with this podcast that you heard or uh, I'd, I'd heard it in passing, but as I say, so uh, you said it out in a lot more detail as you always do with with lots of other allusions and references. My my sort of my my helicopter view on this is that I like it. Uh, I think it's one of these things that I don't know if we're ever going to know the truth of that. Uh, my 
gut instinct is to say that uh, rather than uh, the Starks have got the blood of the others, it's the others have got the blood of the Starks. Uh, so I, I tend to look at it the other way around. Uh, but I don't actually... Uh, when I was going through that material, I don't actually think the two have to be mutually exclusive. I think that the, that the others could have the blood of the Starks, and then, as you described it, with the uh, the, the child could have got rescued. That does not have to be the the progenitor of the Stark um, family, because that's not how genetics works. You get they they could come in and marry with somebody who was a Stark. Uh, and that's how it could carry on. So you could just get a new influ- infusion of some some genetics from elsewhere. So uh, I, I I really like the idea that what happened with Monster is is uh, reflective uh, in some way of what might have happened a long time ago. And I really like the idea that we don't know what happened with the Knights King and the Knights Queen Queen, and that that, that somebody would have taken. Uh, taken sympathy on a child and extracted it from that situation and kept it secret. And that's the bit that for me, I go, well, uh, all of these other uh, things that we, or or, uh, situations that we refer to monster that's kept secret. People aren't really supposed to be knowing what's going on. There, not many people know about that. Jon Snow with the uh, uh, being rescued, that is also kept a secret. And so for me, if, if there was a child rescued from that situation, for it to fit that kind of uh, theme, then that also needs to be have kept a secret. So one of the questions that people ask me periodically is, you know, how do you know? How will we ever know if X, Y, and Z thing is true? And I'm pretty. I'm. Pr- I keep it pretty vague. Uh, as far as, you know, I don't usually try to take things down to the last level and pin things down. Like I talk about, you know, maybe Azor High was the same person as Knight's King, or maybe he was his son or somebody in a generational line. You know, Azor High might not be even one person, but rather a group of people or a two, just like we consider John and Danny both Azor High reborn. So, you know, I, I keep things pretty vague, but still people ask me like, well, how will we know? You know, how will we know if yeah. moon meteors even cause the long night? You know, and so one of the obvious answers, obviously, is if it's really important to the story, Bran could see it. You know, he could see a vision of the hammer of the waters. He could see a vision of a star falling and a a smoke plume. Uh, The other way is it could happen again. You know, like what will happen with Monster? Will Monster be sacrificed in order to resurrect John? You know, maybe it won't be Shireen. You know, maybe and then if Monsters, if that happens, if Monster is sacrificed. Uh, to resurrect John, then we can conclude that something like that may have happened the first time. You know, that's that's another way that we can we can know. But I do wonder what John's going to learn at the end of his crypts dream because he's got this reoccurring dream of walking in the crypts, and each time he goes a little further, and one can surmise that while he's dead and floating in the bardo, that he's going to get to the end of that dream. And maybe he'll see Leanna's spirit or something symbolic of his dragon heritage or who knows what. But I've definitely got my eyes on the end of that dream for some kind of reveal. Uh, but the whole point of the blood of the other, other 
I keep saying blood of the utter. It's so hard not to. Uh, <laughs> the whole point of it is that the Starks would be um, sort of an offset to the Targaryens. Meaning the Targaryens have the blood of the dragon, which is literally a magical bloodline. The idea of the Starks having the blood of the other would mean that they have some sort of icy ability. And another way that we could find out about that is what's John going to be like when he's resurrected? Is he going to be something more than cold hands? Something we haven't seen before? Will he have like burning blue eyes? You know, something like that would, would be a big clue that, that he, John is a special zombie, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think unless I, in, well, I, I'm prepared to be uh, uh, surprised by what happens with, with John when he comes back. Uh, I, I think that it's pretty much beyond doubt that he will uh, he will skin change into ghost during that period and then be brought back into his body. Uh, and I think that from what George R. R. Martin was said when he was talking about Beric, that seems to, he was wanting to use Beric as the in in story foreshadowing of what was going to happen to John with the coming back. Uh, and that therefore makes him a fire white rather than a, I, th- I think you wanted to call him was it a nature white or something. I think you, you greens. Got, well, like green zombie is the, the word zombie. I use just be basically that, do, that doesn't really even mean if it's going to be an ice or fire thing. The green zombie term just indicates that it's a skin changer who's been resurrected. And I think that that will enable John to have more of his consciousness than Barrick does. Because oh, yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. That's yeah. all, but it, I've always said that I'm not sure if John will be an ice or fire white or both or neither. I'm very much like just waiting to find out. Yeah. Um, can I just, uh, I don't want to disrupt the flow of this conversation, but just to sort of uh, go back on the, 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 the bigger point about the myths. Uh, I, I think that for me, one of the key points about how George R. R. Martin is writing the story is structuring the story and, and, and what he's trying to say through the story. I don't, I don't think he's trying to sort of ram messages down our throats, but I think that he's trying to show us some things. And one of the, uh, one of the elements of this which keeps on coming out is that the truth of something matters less than what people who believe in it do. So where the my usual example in this one is uh, is with the Lord of Light and Melisandre. What actually matters more to the story is not whether the Lord of Light as a god figure exists. What matters is the fact that Melisandre believes absolutely uh, and that she therefore is doing things on that basis. And so when you take uh, uh, this to uh, the thinking about the actual legends within the, the the world that's being created the way i view this is that the actual literal truth of those matters less than the belief in them and the uh, the sort of the w- what people will do and how this creates a reality for people to be driving the story forward i, I, I hope that made sense oh absolutely i think that's a big layer of uh, what George Martin is doing, and um, we've we've reached over 140 viewers, and so that's why I've put on the celebratory horns. horns. Nice. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta give the people what they want. It's it's <laughs> it's like one of my most requested uh, thing. Yeah, casual. We're doing casual horns today. <clears throat> Nothing too over the top. Don't have the the beard. I will be bringing the beard and the horns to uh, Con of Thrones, by the way. 
And in fact, that's probably a good time to uh, go ahead and make break a little news here. Um, I will be going to Con of Thrones. I will be speaking at Con of Thrones. I will be on many panels. Uh, <laughs> I've got two that I suggested, and then I'll be on a couple of others. And the two that I suggested uh, were the Mythical Astronomy panel, just in general, which will actually not be a panel, but just be me giving my basic theory to as many people as possible. It's sort of brand new kind of all sort of rephrase yeah, small my, panel then yeah we had a very small panel but it'll just be basically the mythical astronomy speech then i've got one coming uh which is basically why george r martin is an awesome writer and on that one i've got crow food's daughter and i've got aziz and i've got um uh secrets of the citadel Gemma as well and we are going to be talking Basically about some of the various things that George does that makes A Song of Ice and Fire great writing that I think a lot of people enjoy but don't understand exactly uh, the full depth of, of why A Song of Ice and Fire is so good. There's a lot of angles. There's obviously the symbolism angle. There's also the unreliable narrator, which I like to talk about. Um, so mm, that's, that's going to be a good panel. And basically, you know, George gets a lot of trolling and a lot of grief for not releasing Winds of Winter promptly. And I feel like... Uh, most people have probably missed 80% of what's in the books he's already written. And so my idea is like to have a panel to sort of bring to light some of these extra layers for people that maybe have a more casual relationship with stuff. And just to give George some credit, man, because I'm just tired of George getting trolled all the time. I have a, I have a Twitter policy of blocking people anytime I see them trolling George's post because it's just... Anyways, there'll be a couple other good panels. Um, we're going to be talking about dragons, uh, the archetypes of the seven. And, uh, oh, that's right. I've got another panel uh, that I did that's going to be about nature mythology. And I think I actually crossed my wires a minute ago. I said Crow Food's Daughter on the last panel. I've got Crow Food's Daughter on the nature mythology panel, not the George Martin is a good writer panel, but... There's a lot of panels, so don't blame me. The point is, if you're going to Con of Thrones, there'll be lots of action. And if you're thinking about going, then you should go, because there'll be lots of action. And I'll be there all three days, hanging out in my horns and my beard. Robert, are you going to <laughs> Con of Thrones? I'm afraid not. I'm very jealous of all those who are. I think all, all the best people in the community seem to be going. Uh, and so I'm, I'm feeling, not just for the uh, the, the the panel discussions, uh, even the, the very small panel discussions, which sound fascinating, uh, but the, just that the hanging out with people is so that this has got an amazing community that, I mean, just looking in the chat, all the names of all these people. Uh, so that for me is the thing that I'm, uh, I'm feeling like I'm missing out on is a chance to actually meet people in real life. So uh, next year, if it happens next year, I will definitely be on that plane. But this year I'm afraid uh, uh, um, it's time crazy. and money. Do not allow. Oh, yeah. The, the airline tickets are tough and you're over there across the pond. So, yeah, the flights are killer. I don't know what to say. Um, I will try to get as much audio recording as I can get my hands on and put it out to you guys. So I'm not sure exactly what the policy is, so I can't promise that. Uh, yeah. So Azora Hype. Yeah, I will. He said he'll grab a couple and uh, Amethyst Koala will be there recording a couple things. So, yeah, we'll try to bring you guys the action. But all right, so let's get to I got some questions um, sent in ahead of time. Uh, Steven Stark. OK, yes. Yeah, so thank you for the super chat. You must have got me at the beginning. Did you have a question? 
one of my patrons, Mr. Stephen Stark. Stephen, if you have a question, go ahead and pop it in. If not, then thanks for bringing that to my notice and know that you are loved and appreciated as a member of the starry host. Yeah. Winter design is in the chat. Another good artist. All right. So Robert, I going to come back to this first one, but we got a lot of people giving you love for your performance. And so I want to butter you up a little bit. Meridian Mormont <laughs> says, all LML being stuck in the hospital is so much easier with your wonderful self, smoothest honey voice of, and the smoothest honey voice of Robert. Wonderful work as usual. Always enjoy your videos and appreciate all the time and work you put into a song of ice and fire hugs and kisses. Thank you, Meridian. Kimberly wow, G says, you. yep. Hey, LML was just a bit rewatching one of your vids. The Prince that was promised uh, to the others. Loving this already. Love all you do. Oh, and a big bonus. Love you too, Robert. Yeah. Thank you. Graphics by Kathy. Woo. You're present. Such, uh, you present such dense information. I need to re-listen several times. And I, I throw this out occasionally. I re-listen several times. I go over my drafts a whole bunch of times before they make sense to me. So I expect that they do have to be listened to a couple of times, just like a good prog rock album. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, and she also said, thanks for Robert's voice. Love you both. So I normally don't uh, put shameless flattery of myself, but since... Uh, some of these have you in it, Robert. That gives me a good excuse to do so. so. Wow. Well, so well I, th thank you. As I say, I, I, uh, I, I've listened to, to quite a few of yours, but uh, so, but uh, not all of them. And I definitely listened to these ones. And uh, as well as making my voice sound uh, it, it, very good with that cool echoey thing you managed to get on it, which I was very impressed by. Uh, but I thought these were some of the best things I've seen you do. So uh, as you know, I am a big fan, and I've uh, I've, I've been telling all the people on my channel to come over and check you out. So uh, I'm delighted to see quite a few of them in the chat here uh, as well, which is good. Yeah. They've been saying hi to me as they pop over. I've definitely got a lot of people that have come my way from you. So my pleasure. And of course I recently updated my collaborations tab on my YouTube page and I was on Robert's uh, channel about a month ago and I added that to the collaborations folder. So if you missed that, you can go to the In Deep Geek channel, or you can check my collaborations folder and make your way there. And Melanie Patrick says, just because you guys are a wonderful part of the community, and she has sent in, well, if I look at it upside down, it's 666, so we'll go with that. It's 999. <laughs> Thanks, Melanie. That's your number. That. Yeah, hell Satan. Uh, let's see here. And uh, Okay, we got a couple more uh, shameless flattery here. Rod Dammit 5 says, for the night is dark and full of L LML essays. Robert, the ultimate wingman and <laughs> friend okay. of both of ours, Emilio Camacho Aris. Hey, wow. Robert is really good. Uh, this episode came more suddenly than I expected. Thanks for using my sentence. He's the one who thought of a uh, uh, brother from an other mother, ah. <laughs> which I missed the first it's time around. It, I was so embarrassed that I missed that. And uh, he hooked it up for me. So I'll give him endless credit for that. That was great. Let's see. Pablo says, I too am really looking forward to your upcoming Ned Stark and Winterfell episode and the Q&A session. I love it that you have Robert doing the reading. I think his voice and accent are ideal for the job. I, I was uh, jokingly said that fantasy always sounds better in a British voice. It just does. There's no getting around it. So anytime I can get a Brit on the mic, I do it. Well, I'm, I'm I'm seriously happy to come on when you know, whenever I've got the time and whenever you want me. I, it's, uh, I'm at your disposal. Yeah, I, I like to get uh, different people on. It's a fun way to uh, 
to just sort of you know spread the love around it's that's good absolutely times. Gemma did a great job when she was on too and i'm gonna get uh I'm going to get Quinn from ideas to do a reading. I'm waiting for like the creepiest episode that I write and then I'll get Quinn. To <laughs> Good choice. So Steven Stark uh, did send me a question and he says it was mostly about the similarity between Elric of Melnibony and John and Bloodraven. Do I think their fates will be similar? Uh, do you think Lightbringer shares similarities with Stormbringer? So yes, I mean, Lightbringer shares a lot of similarities with Stormbringer and I went pretty quick um, in, when I was talking about it, but it's worth unpacking a little bit. I would encourage everybody to do a little more digging into Elric. Um, there's the main thing is that the black sword is cursed and that it, it's kind of like the first, I think it's the first, I hesitate to say that, but it's the first or one of the first of the archetypal fantasy swords that drink people's souls and literally stores people inside of it. There's a lot of versions of that sword in a lot of stories, but I think um, Elric's Stormbringer might have been the first one, and it's very influential. I definitely think the idea of Nissa Nissa's soul and spirit going into Lightbringer is a nod to this. And I also mention often the uh, Ironborn legend of, uh, or actually it's like a Greenland legend where they would say that the Ironborn would attack with foul, sorcerous black weapons that drank the souls of those they slew. And whether that has any connection or not, it just shows that George is thinking of you know, that classic fantasy idea of soul-drinking swords. And so I think that's the main similarity with Stormbringer. But the thing about Elric is that, and I, I kind of glossed over this, Elric is the last of his line, and his bloodline is kind of like elves or valerians. They're superhumans. They have, you know, longer lifespans and different abilities and things. And he's like the last of this line. And so this is the thing he shares with Bloodraven. He's very isolated. There's really nobody... Um, that's kind of his equal. And I apologize if I'm making any mistakes here, but um, I know, cause I know he has cousins and stuff, but they're not the, like the official line of Melnibony or something. I, I don't know. Maybe he's got magic that they don't, I need to read more of it to figure it out. But over and over, I find this theme being talked about uh, where Elric is basically very isolated with the weight of the world on his shoulders. And that's totally the blood Raven thing. Um, and I think that John could end up the same way to the question that Stephen was asking. When I look at cold hands, and Robert, I'm going to ask you what you think about cold hands in a second. I've often, when I look at cold hands, I see somebody that's almost like paying a penance. Like he's just doomed to wander the north forever, just ranging forever. He never sleeps. He never has any joy. He's just an eternal corpse. He doesn't die. And he just walks around. And whether it's 80 years or 800 years... It's a lonely fucking job. <laughs> and uh, I, I often wonder if that's, if this isn't Knight's King or Last Hero or some, but one of these original sinners that are paying off their penance, or if perhaps they're just symbolic of that idea. Like maybe there's been a long line of people like Cold Hands carrying out that duty. Who knows? But I definitely look at that and think that might be John at the end of this story. He might be the new cold hands where he can't live with the living because he's a zombie and he's just got to range the North forever. Something super lonely like that. That would be pretty sad. Wouldn't it? Pretty bittersweet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that he, he is certainly uh, destined for uh, something that is uh, isolating in some way, whether that is death or whether that is just him uh, taking the weight of everything on himself 
as as this kind of balance between ice and fire i i don't know but yes i could certainly uh, i could certainly see that um just to pick up on the two other points uh, uh firstly just about um uh the elric uh, it's been a long time since I've read those books, uh, but but yes, I think the visuals are the thing that get me with the the the, the white skin and the red eyes. And uh, just as I was doing my Blood Raven video, uh, which as I say is going to come out tomorrow, it struck me uh, that that obviously Blood Raven isn't the only character with this white and red eyes. There's also the weirwood trees that he's closely associated with and also ghost uh with the the white fur the albino fur and the red eyes and i think that's not a coincidence that uh that uh, there is a a clear link between john's direwolf who is obviously uh very closely associated with him and uh blood raven and i think that that's going to play out a lot over the next couple of books um you you asked about cold hands um I've not done a huge study of cold hands, I have to admit, but my my gut instinct is that he seems to be the sort of helper for Blood Raven. And I do wonder when Blood Raven went up to the wall, uh, this was this was quite a big event. He went up there with, with Maester Eamon, went up there with him, and he also took, I think it was two hundred of his his uh his sort of special guard. He had some archers, I've forgotten the name of them, it was something teeth. Raven's teeth. Uh, the raven's teeth that's it which don't, uh, and which they great because ravens don't have teeth but go ahead well exactly but they so they all went up there and then we don't really hear again from them but the impression is that they're his kind of right hand men and i do wonder whether what mu- what must have happened when the lord commander of the night's watch goes out ranging and doesn't return they send out a mission to try and find him. So there will almost certainly be those those guys who will have headed out north of the wall. And I do wonder whether that's one of them who has been uh, sort of like uh, raised back to this sort of strange undeath kind of thing going on, uh, but is uh, already following Bloodraven and just carries that on into the next phase of his existence. So that's that's my working hypothesis about who cold hands might be so that's my favorite um he's not 800 year old years old theory is that he's that he's one of blood raven's folks that's a good theory and and like i said i have no idea if he's uh if he's you know 200 or 2000 or 8000 it could be because the whole thing is um i don't think those cold whites ever die unless you disassemble them you know we we we, i we don't know that they wear out quote unquote. So if Blood Raven I'm not Blood Raven, but if Cold Hands has the aid of all those ravens and stuff, uh then, you know, maybe he's been around a long time. But in any case, uh let's see, uh Painkiller Jane, one of my good patrons and friends and collaborators, really more of a colleague than anything else, but uh she makes a point that Stormbringer is potentially has an analogue in Japanese mythology. It's called the Heavenly Sword of Gathering Clouds, and she's posted the Japanese name. I'm not going to try to say it. It's the Sacred Sword of the Japanese Emperors, originally the Storm God's Storm, after he slew a dragon and saved a sacrifice. That sounds pretty cool. And I've found a little bit of Japanese mythology in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I think the Maiden Maid of Light is taken from uh, Amaterasu, uh, which is a Japanese sun goddess. 
and I've uh, the whole Sun Wukong thing that I talked about in the Tyrion Targaryen episode. You know who Sun Wukong is, Robert? I don't know. Please enlighten me. It was a well. It was a TV show uh, a while back, which is the way you might know it. But basically, he's this. It's where all the demon monkey references come from for Tyrion. Sun Wukong okay. is this really badass character who's sort of not good or evil. He's very much chaos agent in the middle. And uh, it's, it's a really great character. Check out my Tyrion Targaryen episode if you're ever uh, digging through my backlog. Yeah, Journey to the West is what it's called. That's the book and the show. Have you heard that, Journey to the West? Does that ring a bell? I, v- vaguely, yes. But, but it's a, that's a sort of a meme as much as anything. So I, I might oh, and it's a Chinese epic, not Japanese. Oh, boy. That's... Psh, sorry. Terrible. Terrible mistake. Yeah, it's chi- that one's Chinese. But uh, Amaterasu is Japanese, and uh, I do believe that he's using that. So I think that George is at least passingly familiar with some Eastern mythologies and not just like Norse myth. And we know he's into Iranian and Persian myth and uh, Zoroastrianism as well. So yeah, I've yet to find something he's not into, to be honest. Well, and there's a lot of South American stuff, too, that we've found. Uh, a lot of the whole dragon glass candles idea it really seems like he's taking from obsidian mirrors of Mesoamerican shamans. It's really widespread mm. kind of thing. And so he was in the Southwest, so he might be hip to some of that that way too. Um, in any case, uh, let's see, we are having a good time and not getting many questions out of this uh, <laughs> document. <laughs> That's all right. <clears throat> Sometimes when I have a guest on, we don't get them all. So Lady Dane, Le- Jojo Lady Dane, who could not be with us. She's otherwise engaged today. She is also known as Lady Dane, the Twilight Star. The Born Mouth, daughter of the Frost Giants and official secret keeper of Starry Wisdom. Must give her her title. It's a good name. She said name. Uh, her eight-year-old, who always listens along with her, loved the one-eye, one-horn, flying purple people eater reference and has gone off to listen to it now. <laughs> and uh, I included that one because I just wanted to make a point of saying that I am aware that some people listen with their kids. And that is usually why I try to keep a lid on the cursing because... You know, I try to tell, I jokingly tell people on Twitter, it's a family show and I can't talk about all the poop symbolism that everyone seems to keep discovering. (laughs) I can't do it. It's a family show, guys. Uh, So here we get into a few people. I'll just go through these real quick. Basically, uh, and Blue Tiger, I know you're in the chat. We've got some folks requesting more Lord of the Rings. Pablo uh, Alvestiguai. Probably, maybe. Uh, and Arwen Safan says, please do a special on Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones parallels. I love both stories so much. And it was discussing this very thing with my sister a day before you uploaded. And House Thompson, very interesting, very interested in any Tolkien comparison videos. My jolly sailor bold. I would like to see the comparison of Lord of the Rings and A Song of Ice and Fire by you and your channel. Uh, by the way, Gray Area has an awesome channel. Yes, she does. She also did a video about the Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones ending being like the Lord of the Rings ending. And she compared some Game of Thrones characters with some of Song of Ice and Fire characters. Uh, I think thinks they mean uh, Lord of the Rings characters with the Song of Ice and Fire characters like Bran with Frodo, John with Aragorn. That's a classic. Danny with Arwen. So I actually have not watched that yet. I will have to check it out. But we can give Gray Area a shout out anyways. That video, and just just on that 
point. I've not, I've not seen that video either, but um, uh, it's it's one of the things I always say say about the ending is that we always pick up on George R. R. Martin saying the ending's going to be bittersweet, but he actually said if you want the feel for the ending, you should look at the scouring of the Shire, the penultimate chapter in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, that is what I'm aiming for, is what he said. Uh, mm. And so we, we get if we get so focused in on this word mm. bittersweet, we miss this idea that um that, that is the feeling that he's got and for those who who haven't read it because it actually wasn't in the films at a very high level the hobbits go back to to hobbiton uh, and they discover that all is not well but they have they have got newfound strengths and abilities uh, and they kick out the last of the bad guys and then they rebuild the shire it's never going to be the same place it was before, but they build a, a sort of a, a version of the old that's got a sort of a new hope and spirit to it. And that, for me, is the uh, is, is absolutely crucial to our understanding of where A Song of Ice and Fire is going to end in George R.R. R. Martin's mind. So I can imagine at a very high level that once we've had the big battles, uh, the equivalent of all the battles over outside Mordor, then we will get the uh, cripples, bastards and broken things coming back home, as it were, and uh, finding a last few things they need to root out and a new world that they need to build and trying to work out what is it that they want to keep from the old world. So that, that for me, when he says that's the feel that he's going for, I think that is the thing that we should focus on. But as I say, I've not seen Gray's video, so uh, so she may well explain it a whole lot better than I just did. Yeah, I've been so slammed this week. I've got a bunch of stuff to catch up on. Um, I'm only like halfway through the Nauta cast. Uh, a Dance with Dragons is better than a Storm of Swords episode, which is pretty funny so far. <laughs> um, so uh, Nazia in the chat points out that George also uses a bit of Indian mythology, which is very true. I've talked about some of that. Nissa means woman in Arabic. And that's uh, so that's I've also uh, some people have pointed out that Nissa Nissa having the fact that it's doubled might be sort of a hint about two moons or two different women. Like I talk about Azor Ahai having his fire and ice, you know, Queens or whatever. Um, but yeah, Nissa means woman in Arabic and, um, the Vedic Indian mythology is possibly like the coolest mythology in the entire world. They have spaceships. That's all I have to say. So <laughs> Indian mythology is awesome. And I have, it's on my list to read, uh, there's a couple of epics uh, that I've I've watched videos that are sort of like summaries of them, uh, and I know Graham Hancock has done a lot of research into Indian mythology as well. And there's definitely some in uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire that is for sure. And in fact, I've actually got an essay about Kali and the Kali influences on A Song of Ice and Fire that I've got kicking around in my drafts. I need to find a place to fit it in. But the whole scene where Danny is going into the Tent of Shadows at the end of Game of Thrones and that fight outside the tent, there is a ton of Kali references, and it's really, really cool. And the whole Kali concept will be very familiar to people because Kali represents the womb and the tomb. It's the cosmic darkness, and that's Kali means the black one. And uh, one of the best ways I've ever heard it put is that Kali represents the blackness in between the stars. So this is like the place where the stars come from, the void, the cosmic void. And it's the whole, the whole idea about seeing death as a part of the life cycle is that death is that void. It's, it's the tomb, but it's also the womb from which life emerges again from because it's a cycle. 
And so Kali and any sort of God or mythology that touches on that concept is something that George is going to be able to pull into his story. And this is the reason why I've got the whole nature cycle panel at Con of Thrones is because the nature cycle mythology is super central to this whole story. I mean, that's what the long night is, is a disruption of the nature cycle. It's not that winter is bad or that nighttime is bad. It's getting stuck on winter and nighttime that's bad. And similarly, the others and the whites, they refuse to die. They're supposed to die and give way to the next cycle of life. But instead, they're just like, you know, we're not going to spring. We're not going to daytime. We're not going away. (laughs) Nobody else can live. And that's the whole, like, deep cosmic sin of the long night and causing it. And and so to get back to your point, actually, about the scouring of the Shire, the dream of spring is just that. It's basically, it's Mm. getting that whole cycle to turn again. And that's why all this Corn King mythology is so important. And that's why we've got so many heroes that might need to sacrifice themselves in order to sort of get this thing moving and restore the life cycle. And so there's going to be a rebuilding phase at the end of it. There should be. There should be a hope for the future. And you should see that from out of the rubble, we have the phoenix rising. And that's that's essentially what, what the scouring of the Shire is. It's, you know, it's just that. It's rebuilding. So that's a great point that you make. I hadn't heard that quote, but it, it makes a ton of sense. It, it absolutely does. I suspect on the show, they probably won't want to focus too much on the what happens next side. But in the books, yes, I think that we're going to see uh, that feel of the rebuilding. Uh, and, and it's not going to be here's a completely shiny new thing that everything's perfect. And it's also not going to be where before it's going to be a, okay, that didn't work. We've got some sort of balance. How can we move forward? And uh, I think we're going to leave it in that time when we we don't know for sure whether this is going to work. We just know that there are uh, good people and some probably not so good people there trying to build something for the future. Right. And that's, I think we'll see the brand, the builder sort of uh, historical echo come to the fore. You know, we'll see, we'll see some building. And that's, uh, so what did you, what did you think of my idea? And I'm looking at the chat. It looks like Amelia was trying to ask a question and it got lost. Sanrixian, just let me know when when we got that. And uh, as far as, so Robert, I was going to ask you, what did you think of the idea that if the other, if the Starks have some sort of ice magic ability through a potential stolen other child, could that explain the building of the wall? Or more broadly, you could even ask the idea of a human that... Because I presented um, Knight's Queen as potentially being like a Melisandre, but with ice magic. And this would be a human who's being sort of transformed into a being that lives on ice magic, just as Mel runs on fire magic. Could could something like that be the explanation for who built the wall? Uh, It could. um, My... Uh, my gut feeling is that so stark magic is is a sort of a subset of children of the forest magic however we want to call that uh, uh the the nature the skin changing the green seer this whole idea this comes from the children of the forest magic and uh i think it would probably uh, if you look at the the others magic it's this seems to be a parallel to the stark magic but a sort of a they have it over the dead not over the living so you get 
the others can control the dead in the same way, roughly, that the screen seers, the skin changers can control the living. It's it's a sort of an echo of one of another. Um, uh, in terms of the ice magic, now I I view this as being another uh, a part of that mirroring of. Uh, the children of the forest magic. Now, I know you've got lots of thoughts about the hammer of the waters and things like that, but I think that the reason that these uh, these legends of magnificent things that uh, the children of the forest can do with water is it comes from probably because they do have things they can do with water that fits in with the general feeling of they can do magic with nature and things that are around them with the uh with the the, the trees and and the, and the rivers and things like that that makes sense to me that they can as part of that body of magic do something with water and it therefore makes sense to me that the, the othering of this but in the uh, can do stuff with so I think for me, that's where that actually comes in. It's not so much a, I don't think you need to have the Starks, the others uh, putting magic into the Starks in order for them to have uh, other magic. I think that uh, the Children of the Forest magic is there already for them. And, and so I think, how, does, uh, how does that apply to the building of the wall then, I guess? What's your idea about how the wall was built? So I think the the wall, personally, um, I think that the wall was built by the children of the forest and the giants, as we have been told. Uh, and I think that uh, we get too hung up on the idea that this is ice and therefore only the kind of thing that, because it's so big and magnificent, only the kind of thing that uh, the others could do. The wall was not always that high. Uh, it's it's it was built on over centuries and millennia uh, by adding a bit on here, a bit on there. The uh, the uh, the Night's Watch have got a whole brigade of people they have done for millennia who are there just focused on maintaining and building the wall as effectively as well as other structures around. Uh, so when it was built. It probably wasn't anything like what we have at the moment. It probably was uh, something which seems slightly less magnificent. And uh, I, I do, part of me does wonder when we get that original bit of the oath about the watcher on the walls. Maybe the wall wasn't all built in one go. Maybe it happened over decades or centuries even, but this got lost to history. Maybe there were bits of wall that they've just joined up we certainly know for example that there was uh if you're at castle black if you if you look east it's a straight wall if you look west it's a snake-like wall there's definitely different aspects to it it doesn't look like it was just a right i'm going to draw a line on a map and this is where we're going to go so uh i don't see that the others need needed to be there to make it i think that this was a thing which happened over time and just got built up and built up but that's just as a last bit on this. I think uh, that's actually the the physical wall is actually less important than the magical wall, and I think that is the bit that really matters because you can you can you can go around or under or over or through a physical wall. The actual defence was the magic, and I think that was the thing uh, that we should be looking for. Who did that? And I think. Again, probably the children of the forest. 
All right. Well, I'm a little disappointed with the uh, the logical uh, answer there, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's definitely possible. And um, we George has indicated that it's grown over time, so we know that's that's at least a part of it. Um, I'm going to go with ice wizards uh, raising sheets of water and freezing them in place, but that's okay. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot cooler, right? I mean, personally, I just think that there was this meteor shower of like big icicles that all came down in a line now we're we're talking Uh, that's that's probably what happened okay yeah you're back in my good graces all right so (laughs) emilio's question says uh uh these so we were talking earlier robert about the bloodlines that sort of maintain a signature look and these ones that might have magical bloodlines are they the original of the former cast of the Empire of the Dawn? Like, for example, the Valerians were the ruling class. Right. So the Great Empire of the Dawn was so big that it would have had to have been a multi-ethnic empire. And we can sort of surmise that because when they fractured, we ended up with all these different empires, Yi-Ti and Hercun and the Jogosnai and Ashai and Nefer and wherever else. Um, so we know that... I mean, if you if you got an empire that's that big, it's it's like the Roman Empire. It's going to have Greeks and it's going to have Middle Easterners and it's going to have Spanish people and it's going to have all these different Africans that are all going to be North Africans. You know, they're all going to be a part of this empire. So that's how I look at the Great Empire of the Dawn. They probably weren't all dragon riders. You know, the the ones that had the Valerian looks or that gave rise to Valeria would have been obviously the dragon people. Um, but we don't know who else could have been like the Ironborn. They have a lot of clues that they came uh, not from Westeros by sea. Uh, and the obvious obvious suspect would be the Great Empire of the Dawn, but they don't look Valerian. Um, so I think that it's still possible because, yeah, I don't think that you would have had the whole Great Empire of the Dawn looking all the same, uh, to answer your question. And the Starks also don't look like Valerians or anything. And if they have some sort of connection to Azor High, either through the others or not, then those Valerian looks got lost. So, yeah, there's... Again, this is one of those things where I don't try to get too specific. The Magical Bloodlines thing is something that Martin can use when he needs to, um, but he can also discard, because he could also just say, well, in so much time, the looks have been watered down and disappeared. So, it's again, to sort of piggyback on what Robert was saying about the wall, it's the magic that's important. And it's that's what I always say about RLJ. It's not that John's going to have a claim to the throne, although that may be you know used a little bit as a drama tool, a tool to create drama. But the main thing is his bloodline. You know, it's it's he's got dragon blood and he's got green seer blood and maybe blood of the other. And these magical bloodlines swirling around are going to enable him to do things like become a better zombie or who knows what, you know, you know, maybe his death, his sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can heal the pain, you know, that the others feel in their hearts. That's the whole idea that the, the, the prince that was stolen from the others is the prince that was promised to the others, which is ultimately a Stark. And so some Stark has to be given back to the others so they can, you know, heal their wounds or whatever. Did you have anything to add to that, Robert? Uh, no, other than the fact that I, I, I think that my next self-help book is going to be called How to Be a Better Zombie. I think that's that's a great, great idea. Something we should all aspire to. Yeah. It's going to be important. All right, so let's get to some actual questions here. The mystery knight knows, known only as Rusted Revolver, a.k.a. the most resuited, 
the Lilith Walker, Great Dane friend and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Pisces, who's in the chat. Less than a fortnight passed, they fought a battle in the hills below the Golden Tooth. And this is a quote from, I believe it's a Storm of Swords. Uncle Edmure had sent Lord Vance and Lord Piper to hold the pass, but the Kingslayer descended on them and put them to, the, to flight. Lord Vance was slain. The last word we had was that Lord Piper was falling back to join your brother and his other bannermen at River Run with Jamie Lannister on his heels. That's not the worst of it, though. All the time they were battling in the past, Lord Tywin was bringing in a second Lannister army around from the south. It's said to be even larger than Jamie's host. Father must have known that because he sent out some men to oppose them. And this is, they're talking about Eddard here. Under the king's own banner, he gave them the command to some Southern lordling, Lord Eric or Derek or something like that. But Sir Raymond Derry rode with him, and the letter said that there were other knights as well in a force of Father's own guardsmen. That's Stark guardsmen. Only it was a trap. It's a trap. Lord Derek had no sooner crossed the Red Fork than, Lannister, than the Lannisters fell upon him. The king's banners be damned, and Lord Gregor Clegane took him in the rear. Don't run with that, Twitter. As they tried to pull back across the Mummers' Ford. Lord Derek and a few other men ha- may have escaped, no one is certain, but Sir Raymond was killed and most of our men from Winterfell. Lord Tywin has closed off the King's Road, it's said, and now he's marching north towards Harrenhal, burning as he goes. So... We've been talking about Elrics and Erics and Arics and Eldricks, and here's Beric Dondarrion called Lord Eric. So this is Rusted's uh, point, uh, catch here, is that through this funny, like, Lord Eric or Derek or whatever, you know, miscommunication about Beric's name, he's actually made Beric an Eldrick figure, which of course fits, because he fits the whole uh, baby rescuer and flaming sword guy archetype, so... That's pretty cool, and like Robert was just saying, Beric Dondarrion is largely a foreshadowing of John in many ways. So there you go. And and he's also um, uh, if you if you look at the description of when we first see him, and you compare the text that we read, it is almost word for word for the description when we first see Bloodraven. He is he is described as sitting in a throne of uh, of weirwood roots that are entangling him in the exact same way that that so that's when Arya sees him and that's the, almost the exact same words that are used for Bloodraven. So so there's another Elric reference across there if you if you're if you're looking for where all these lines might draw join up. Absolutely, and um, one of my most dense, probably my most dense series is my Weirwood Compendium. And I don't know if you've gotten into that one, but if you do, um, the first one, The Great King and the Sea Dragon, I talked a little bit about that. The the parallels between Bloodraven and Beric and what they mean. Um, so check this out, Robert. I'll throw this at you. So Beric is called a Scarecrow Knight, and he is animated by fire. And he's got the Odin symbolism, of the one eye wound. And also mm-hmm. the hanging wound, because even though o- Odin wasn't strangled, hung, he was, quote-unquote, hung on Yggdrasil for nine days uh, when he saw the runes. And so hanging is used as a metaphor for sort of death transcendence, gaining the fire of, of the gods. And that's all through A Song of Ice and Fire. All the hang- hanged people have really great symbolism. So... Beric is, like you said, very much an analog to Bloodraven in so many ways. Um, but then we have John's Azor High dream, which I talk about all the time. 
And that's the one where he's on top of the wall and he's armored in black ice and his sword burns red. And he's killing people that he knows and loves. And he's killing wildlings that scuttle up the ice like spiders. And it's, it's basically this amalgam dream where he's obviously doing some sort of Azora high routine, defending the wall with a flaming sword. But he's also like killing his love, just like, you know, Azora high killed Nissa Nissa. The thing is that in that dream, he doesn't have any other black brothers with him except for these burning scarecrows. And it's, it's, he's remembering the scarecrow brothers that they made to defend the wall when the wildlings attacked. Do you remember those? Yeah. They basically made scarecrows and dressed them up as Night's Watch. Well, in the dream, the scarecrow brothers are all on fire. And so those scarecrow brothers are just an analog to Beric Dondarrion, who's called the Scarecrow Knight who wears a black cloak, who's animated by fire. And they both tie into the whole Wicker Man mythology. And that's something I talked about in Green Zombies. But if you're familiar with that, the Wicker Man is a version of the Green Man. And he's basically, he's made of dead garden shoots and straw and stuff, or wicker. And uh, the specific one I'm talking about is the King of Winter. It's a version of the Wicker Man. The king of the the big okay so um, there's two things the big wicker man is the wicker cage where supposedly you put somebody in and then you burn them alive and you saw that in the movie the wicker man um, there's also something called the king of winter which is a small little thing that you make uh, from the leavings of your harvest and you keep it all winter and you burn it in the spring at uh, at uh, Bialtina I believe it is and sort of usher in the spring. And so the whole idea of a burning wicker man, whether it's this little king of winter or the bigger wicker man, is an important symbol. It's basically the green man dying, the winter version of the green man dying in order to let the spring come in. And so the Night's Watch and the king of winter, the the Stark king of winter, has all that same symbolism where they are the kings that guard the winter and they are supposed to usher in the spring somehow, usually by self-sacrifice. And so this is why we see um, John dreaming of Ned as a burning white with burning straw hair. And we see Barrack as a burning uh, scarecrow. And then we see these burning straw scarecrows on the Night's Watch wall. It's all part of the same symbolism of this burning wicker man. So Barrack is even more closely tied to the Night's Watch mythology and symbolism than just the obvious comparison to Bloodraven would present, I guess is a long way of saying that. You look a little confused. You do, Robert. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I, I was trying to work out. There were so many thoughts going on in my head. I was trying to work out which one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with. I think, uh, yes, I think that is all incredibly cool, uh, and I like that a lot. I think that there is uh, a chance that we're going to see not just Beric going up. Uh, so obviously we're getting confused between book and show here, but, uh, but going to the wall, I could see the brotherhood without banners going up there and I could see more fire whites. So I can see this, uh, being effectively the, the sort of the, the children of, of, of Beric, the thematic children of Beric being and standing there with John on the wall. So I can certainly see that happening. Um, just in terms of sort of the imagery, uh, uh, with the the one eye, uh, I think I, I find this fascinating. Is that because there's there's a, quite a few one eyed characters in A Song of Ice and Fire? Yes, there uh, is. And uh, the, the 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 three that are still going around in my mind, and I'm thinking about 
a couple of videos time i'm going to actually do a proper video on this one uh but you've got you've got blood raven you've got beric and you've also obviously got euron uh and the there is a clear uh of of influences uh and if you can you go back obviously euron talks about his dreams about you know what if what if we can fly and what if we've just never tried and which is very much harking back to the kind of dreams that bran had when he was uh when he was very young when when we had the three-eyed crow trying to teach him to fly in his uh in his dreams so there seems to be a sort of a link across there he of course is is not so much connected in with the the magic of the the old gods and all the rest of it or the weirwoods but I think, uh, and I can't remember. I think it was in one of your. Uh, it might have been the last live stream you did uh, when, when, when you were talking uh, about the comparison between the weirwoods uh, and uh, the shade of the evening trees. And obviously, he is ODing on shade of the evening. Uh, so, so he's almost a sort of a, again a mirror of of the the what is happening with you could say blood raven who's ODing on uh the sort of the sap uh yeah. and from yes, the, the, uh from the from the weirwood tree. Yes, absolutely. I I agree hundred percent that Euron is evil blood raven. Uh and <laughs> there is there's gonna be some interesting stuff going on there. The symbolism Euron and Blood Raven and Barrack, I mean that's I could talk for days. I could probably end up talking circles again. Let's go back to the questions in the chat here so I don't do that. More Lord of the Rings love. Blue Tiger, I assume you are catching some of this. And a lot of this was on my YouTube page. But just go ahead and thank Blue Tiger again uh, for all of his great Lord of the Rings contributions that made that last episode possible. We've been chatting about all that stuff, the Numenorians and Narsil, on and off for a while. And I finally had a great place to put it in so i think everyone was pretty stoked on that and just the whole the whole dane and stark stuff I, I figured everyone would be pretty pretty stoked on that and it has been the case so that is a crowd pleaser okay i loved uh poseidon 12 i loved this video about three times as much because it tied together in symbolic fashion my two favorite fantasy series George's critique of Tolkien is spot on, but he still uses his work as an influencer in his own artistic fashion. And the correlations you brought forth to light in this episode, uh, as, as the correlations you brought to light, make it clear. I always wondered about Ghost being the only direwolf of his litter who was pale with white, while in the books his brothers and sisters are all dark shadows. It reminded me of the contrast between House Dane's sword Dawn, pale white like milk glass, and all the dark Valyrian steel blades like shadows. It's always... Heavily symbolic imagery when you dive into the context. George never ceases to write echoing and rhyming imagery into the backdrop of whatever scene he lays out. Just fantastic. So, yes, I've noticed that, too. You've got one white wolf and then a bunch of dark gray wolves of various shades. And we've got this one white sword, Dawn. And we've got a whole bunch of black Valyrian steel swords. So... I, I do wonder about that. And, of course, John has so many correlations to the idea of the Sword of the Morning, as we've talked about. Um, so I, I definitely think, uh, there was, it makes me think of that one scene where ghost was lying in between John and your This is right before John actually slept with your and he was trying not to. And ghost, he, he, he was thinking about how, um, 
maidens would would sleep with the sword in between their betrothed and them until they're married to sort of keep them chaste. But nobody's ever used a direwolf that way before. So it's even comparing ghosts to a white sword. And I, I think that John becoming the sword of the morning in the symbolic sense is going to involve him being resurrected. And you guys know my theory about that is that ghost... John's spirit is going to go into ghost and they're going to merge. The wolf body is going to be sacrificed. And the John ghost combined wolf person spirit is what's going to go back into John's body. He'll be the wolf man. And he will then be, you know, that's when he'll have his white hair and red eyes. And he'll look like Elric. Uh, He'll look more like ghost at the same time. So I think there's a lot of resonance. And that's what I'm going for. So there will be. I don't know if John will get Dawn, but if he does, that would rock. That would sort of just make it all, bring it all home. But, you know, we'll have to see about that. And in fact, I don't know if we're going to have time to get to the whole um, Wolf's Den debate that I left off with at the end of the last episode. Uh, we're running out of time here because I, I do have to go right at uh, right at 2 or 5 o'clock Eastern or 11 o'clock or I guess 10 o'clock British time it would be. Uh, 10 o'clock. I hope, I hope we're not going until 11 o'clock my time. No, no, we're not. No, we're just going another half hour. Um, so let's see. Oh, uh, Lady Warrior of House Tinfoil. <laughs> okay, I'll answer that question just for the name alone. Do I think that the Red God Burning Weirwood again could be part of why Night's King is heading south? This sounds like a show question. Pact or promise was broken, uh, potentially coming to get his Night's Queen. So we, Joe Magician and I talked about the idea that Night's Queen or her spirit is stuck in the Winterfell Weirwood or in the Winterfell Crypts and that the others are coming for their queen. I think that's a cool idea. A little bit of symbolism to support that. And uh, burning Weirwoods could certainly be a way of releasing spirits that are maybe trapped in the Weirwood. Yeah, I could see that. Um, So, yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis. I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but it seems plausible. Let's see. Okay, back to the scripted ones that I got ahead of time. Gato Volado R. After listening to this, I kind of have the following scenario in mind. Okay, so I've got, Robert, I've got three questions in a row about the Tower of Joy. So we're going to talk about, (laughs) I'm going to read all these and we're going to talk about the Tower of Joy for a minute. I have the following scenario in mind. The original Long Night can be beaten back thanks to the last hero taking Dawn, or slash original Ice, from the others, and maybe also a child. And that's, of course, the scenario that I think the the Tower of Joy is showing us. Ned as a last hero, taking an other baby and the white sword away from the White Shadow Kingsguard. So the comment goes on. This sword, Dawn, original ice, may have been enha- may have enhanced the power of the others while being just an awesome sword for humans, just like the ring is way more powerful for Sauron than it is for random people. And of course, with the sword missing... This would represent a turning point in the war, ultimately leading to the defeat of the others. Now the last hero sits there and takes precautions, because the whole thing might happen again. So he orders the wall to be built, and takes the sword as far away as possible from the north as he can, just to be sure that the others cannot take a hold of it. Maybe this also uh, went. Uh, this hero also went with the uh, this went with the sword swap, naming the replica ice just to fool the others. Um, so I'm not sure the last part about this quote, but the, the first part of it is exactly something that has occurred to me before, which is that the reason why Dawn, if Dawn is the original ice, the reason why it's in the South is because it's just physically far away from the North and from the others. And if it really is 
the original sword of Night's King or the others, or it's made with ice magic or anything like that, it may well be something that is truly, truly powerful in the hands of the others. And at all costs, we have to keep it away from them. Definitely think that's possible. And I also think it's possible that the true power of Dawn, and Robert, tell me what you think about this, is that Dawn is not necessarily a chopping sword, but since it's made out of milk glass, it might function something like a glass candle, only better somehow. So it would be like a milk glass candle. Because the glass candles, Robert, are described as being like swords. They're like three feet tall and twisted and sharp. And so I've just wondered is maybe maybe uh you know because there's a lot of that's a fantasy trope is the magic sword that doesn't actually it's not meant for stabbing but it's got some other more magical property to it so it's i would call it tinfoil it's not anything i'm like attached to but i've just wondered if maybe dawn is a milk glass candle what do you think uh yeah it's possible i mean can i come back on the first of those ones first sure, though, sure. Which, which is uh, uh the, the the issue about the taking dawn down to as far south as it can go um i think actually for me the stronger argument there is the island argument because of course starfall is is on an island mm. uh and uh if you look at where where you might think what what are the the most important things that that the children in the forest might want to be protecting uh by having them on an island if we're taking the the working assumption that that the the others the whites can't cross running water which seems to be reasonable given where the wall ends um it then it'd sure be disappointing if they could i'll t- i'll say that <laughs> exactly exactly uh then you would say okay so uh, Place number one is the centre of the Weirwood network. They want to protect that. That, the Isle of Faces, on an island. Place number two, perhaps, might be where all of their dragon glasses. Let's look at Dragonstone for that. Uh, again, on an island. Place number three, maybe they've got uh, the, the, the sword which did all the damage last time in whatever way that was. If we say that's Dawn, let's put that on another island, Starfall. So I think for me... The islands are the, the the clues to where the important things are that the children of the forest were trying to protect. I like that. I like that a lot. And it, it fits in with um, George's – I believe that what George is doing is he got a little bit of an idea from the Phoenicians who always had a habit of building fortress cities just offshore of places they wanted to trade with or potentially conquer. And if you look at the Valerians, they have that habit. They do it with Volantis. They do it uh, with Dragonstone. Because uh, Dragonstone is basically a, a fortified trading outpost. And we were told that the Targaryens and Valerians uh, were dominating the trade of the Narrow Sea from Claw Isle and from uh, Driftmark and from uh, Dragonstone. I say Claw Isle because it was also the Celtigars. It was the Valerians and Celtigars and... Uh, Targaryens. And then if you look at Battle Isle, which was built by the Great Empire of the Dawn, the predecessors of Valyria, it's the same thing. It's a few stone fortress built in an island at a river mouth um, and potentially built by foreigners who wanted to have trade with Westeros. And so they built this island fortress. And so it's it's a real practical pattern. It's, it's kind of mundane, but we know that uh, George is using the Phoenicians a lot with the whole uh, purple dyed sails of Bravos. And the, the, they got it from snails or whatever, which is the same as the, where the Phoenicians got their purple dyes. So I figured you'd be hip to that whole thing. 
Absolutely. And Baba Husky, my favourite comment of the day, building on the uh, the idea that the children of the forest might be wanting to protect the most valuable things on islands, uh, wine island, the arbour. So there you go. Yeah. And so the idea that um, that's built into the idea of keeping things safe from the others. Uh, Absolutely. Makes, they don't want the other, others getting the wine. Totally. Wine or, you know, uh, weirwood paste from the Isle of Faces <laughs> or Dawn or whatever's, uh, you know, if the others read the cave paintings in Dragonstone's caves, then uh, the whole world will break loose. It'll be like, <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll sort of put their hands up on the wall and the runes will light up and we'll all be fucked. We'll see. And that's what's when the UFO lands, yeah? <laughs> Uh, well, you just you just you just change this channel to a different channel that we don't mention here. <laughs> we don't we don't mention. Okay, so Emma Smith, we got uh, some quick Twitter catches here, and I'm I think they're more are actually more. I jumped the gun on the Tower of Joy things; those are coming. So apologies, but there is Tower of Joy stuff coming. So Emma Smith, uh, Storm Emma, as I like to call her, Archmaester Emma, she points out that uh, Hothor Horsebane has some great wordplay. So Hothor is spelled H-O-T-H-E-R. So it's basically the word other with an H in front. And the others are associated with hoarfrost. So Hothar, Horsbane, might be others. Uh, it's, easy. it's not something you can say. You have to look at it. But essentially, it's the bane of the other's whore. That's the idea. The other's hoarfrost. Uh, Hothor is the bane because he's got the... Um, He's got the snow beard. So the symbolism is that our snow beard characters are the bane of the others. And that is, in fact, what they should be. So that might be overly clever, or it might be something George is working in there. Um, we've got, because remember that the whited version of Ned, that's like the burning. Um, and Robert, here, I'm talking about when Jon Snow killed Othor, the whited version of Othor in Mormont's chamber. He later yeah. dreams of that experience but it's Ned's face on the, the burning other. And that's important because that burning other is named Othor. So it, it's representative of the others in general, I think. And it has a moon face with the blue ice eyes. So it's showing you ice moon symbolism. And then they slap Ned's face on it because Ned is an ice moon character, as are all the Starks. And then it's burning like a King of Winter straw man at the end of it. So this is the ice moon catch. Well, I don't want to let out all my secrets, but... <laughs> Anyways, um, so the point is um, the idea of uh, the whited – a Night's Watch ranger named Othor, who's like other, is basically like a good other. He's an other that switched sides to the Night's Watch, and then he ends up like a burning king of winter with Ned's face. So imagine Ned as the good other, if you will. That's that's the point. And Hothar <laughs> Orsbane uh, could be the same thing because he's got the snowbeard, and I think all the snowbeard characters are showing us the – quote-unquote, good other character. That's another way of talking about the baby that was stolen from the others and then raised as a Stark. He's basically a good other or an other that's like a traitor to the others. And he probably becomes the Night's Watchman. So I, fi I find that a lot of the Night's Watch have that kind of symbolism. All right. Um, I see San Rixian had to time somebody out for three, 300 seconds. Be good, everyone, or Sanri will get you. She will get you, so be nice. I'm not sure what it was. I didn't see it, but be nice. Let's see. Derry Air says two things. First, every time I hear your new theme music, I laugh. It is good, isn't it? I'm sure you like that, Robert, as a uh, 
British guy. I'm sure you're a Monty Python fan, right? Uh, absolutely. It's uh, one of our finest contributions to civilization in my don't they Don't they kick you out of the country if you don't uh, <laughs> swear allegiance? Well, it's not quite that. that not quite, okay. All right. They just send us on a quest for a shrubbery. <laughs> well, one that looks nice. You know, the two-level <laughs> two effect. The sort of path running down the middle. Anyways, um, I do have the horns, so I'm ready to do the Knights of Knee. I'd be rough on the microphone, though, so I won't do it. <laughs> I'll keep the kneeing to a minimum. So Derry Air uh, points out two things, and that's uh, he's got the Plowman's Keep WordPress page. After the Stark-Dane discussion, I'm almost 100% convinced that Danny, Daenerys, a.k.a. the Dane Eris, or Dane Ares, will be playing the ancient Dane's archetypal role. The naming convention is too obvious to ignore. So, Robert, this ties into my tinfoil about Dawn being a milk-glass candle. So, Danny has a significant amount of Dane blood from Deanna Dane. Um, mm -hmm. genetics don't work in percentages, but she would be 25% Dane, quote unquote, tracing back her lineage because it was like three, gen two generations of incest. And right before that, it there was a Dane marriage into the Targaryen line. So it could be that with, since, uh, Ned Dane isn't old enough and dark star is obviously a villain that the, the ultimate Dane sort of epitome will actually be Danny. And some people have speculated that she'll land at Starfall. And I think that was even part of George's original uh, draft letter was Danny landing at Starfall. If, if somebody can let me know if I'm right about that. You know, the original 10 chapter. Yeah, I outline. didn't realize that. Yeah. I think it's in there. So it's possible that, again, this I'm not saying it's likely, but it's possible that Danny, Danny's Dane heritage could be played up and that she'll be able to use Dawn in some sort of magical way instead of uh, instead of actually, you know, swinging it like a greatsword. So yeah, I still think Dragonstone's more likely. Probably. Uh, Old Town, I think, is a possibility, too, but we'll see. Uh, Rusted Revolver, ready for Sansa's potential rescuer. Oh, this is great. Sir Shadrick of Shady Glen, a.k.a. the Mad Mouse. So Sansa is a locked-in ice figure. She's a moon maiden who then goes to the Vale and becomes locked in ice. And she needs a rescuer, perhaps, or at least that role. And that could be Sir Shadrick. So Shadrick's name has Adric in it, which you can change the A to E, and it becomes Edric. So instead of Shadrick, it'd be Shedrick. So maybe there's covert El uh, Edric uh, symbolism in there. And he's going to play the rescuer role. He's from Shady, Shady Glen. So he's from a, sh a place with shadows, like the Shadow Chaser. Shady Glen implies trees. And of course, weirwoods are a big part of this. So now we've got shadows that come from trees, which is like the others, or like the good other. So Shadrick, the Shadow Chaser... Now, let's read the quote about him. This is where it gets good. Sir Shadrick was a wiry, fox-faced man with a sharp nose and a shock of orange hair mounted on a rangy chestnut courser. Though he could not have been more than five foot two, he had a cocksure manner. So he's got basically orange hair is the same as red hair, kissed by fire hair. And it's shocking, so you get the electricity connotation. He has a sharp nose, which gives you the whole, like, blade idea. Even his horse, a chestnut courser, implies red, just like Sansa's chestnut hair. Or at least, I think it's Elaine Stone, actually, that has chestnut hair. And then it said that he did not... Uh, 
Shadrick doesn't intend to participate in the joust, whose winners will be winged knights as, quote, a mouse with wings would be a silly sight. A white mouse with red eyes is actually his sigil, though. And a white mouse with red eyes, of course, makes us think of the rat cook, which has red eyes. But check this out. Even better, and that gets us get back to weirdwood symbolism, but think about a winged white mouse. What's a winged mouse, Robert? I, I would go with a pigeon. No, a bat. <laughs> okay. It's literally a winged mouse. Um, in fact, um, in uh, when Batman was brought to a foreign country, in one country they translated as uh, flying mouse man. Because they okay. didn't, that's their word for bat is, is winged mouse. In any case, um, in A Dance with Dragons, in the dragon pit, uh, the one under Marine's Pyramid, it says, The dragons craned their necks around, gazing at them with burning eyes. Viserion had shattered one chain and melted the others. He clung to the roof of the pit like some huge white bat. His claws dug deep into the burnt and crumbling bricks. This is very tangential, but the point is that white dragons is the symbol of this good other figure. Many, many times we find white dragon symbolism or ice dragon symbolism attached to the good other figure. So here we've got Sir Shadrick, the rescuer, who's like a winged white mouse, which is like a white bat, which is ice dragon symbolism. So pretty in the weeds, but let's keep an eye on Sir Shadrick in the Winds of Winter and see if he does any Shadow Chaser stuff. Because, you know, I always analyze things after they happen, but... This might be, this is Rusted Revolver, who's big into wordplay, might be one of those where he's actually seeing it happen before it happens. He's seeing the table set up for Shadrick to be a Shadow Chaser rescuer figure at an Ice Moon place for a Stark. So we'll see. Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I think that Sansa will increasingly be coming into her own and not need rescuing, but uh, that doesn't mean that she won't have a rescuer. So that is true. I'm glad you made that point. I totally agree with that on a plot level. Sansa will definitely be leading the way. And in fact, Sansa, it was her idea to create the Winged Knights. And this is, apologies, you know, spoilers. This is a Winds of Winter uh, Sansa chapter that's been released ahead of time. But basically, they're having a tourney. And um, 10 minute warning for two hour live stream. Thank you, Thunderclap. so basically Sansa's idea is to have a tourney and they're going to make, uh, they're going to give Robert Aaron a Kingsguard essentially. And they're going to make it eight instead of seven because it's one more. It's like 11 is one more. <laughs> um, and so they're having this tourney and instead of Kingsguard, they're going to be called winged knights, but these winged knights will undoubtedly be parallels for the others, just as the Kingsguard are. And so you have Sansa who has basically become an ice moon queen at the Vale just like she's making child snow knights when she makes her snow castle, she's making the winged knights now. So this is more Knights Queen making the other symbolism that's coming. Um, but yeah, the point is that symbolically there'll be some there'll be some character who helps like spring her loose. Um, you know, it could be accidentally through happenstance. It's not necessarily going to take away Sansa's agency, but there there will be some sort of rescuer figure, quote unquote, in a symbolic term because there always is. Oh. Eldrick Shadow Chaser on Twitter at the Dragon LML, he says that Hodor's real name is Walder. And of course, Hodor was one of the ice uh, snowbeard figures, and he also had the one eye symbolism. But check it out Walder, take away the W, is Alder. And Alderic is an actual British name, 
And Aldric is just a variant of Eldric. So there might be more covert Eldric wordplay there. Don't you don't have to comment on that, Robert? Just let it go. Um, let's I, see. I, I was I was gonna I was just th- th- there's there's so much good stuff coming out at me. I'm just gonna uh, wait for the pause. It feels a little jumbled today. I've got a lot going on. I'm, I feel like it's coming out a little mixed up, but hopefully you guys can figure out what I'm talking about. Let's see here. Um, uh, Josh Koff points out that there's an Erdrick in Dragon Warrior One, which is a super old Nintendo uh, RPG game. And I would assume that he's probably just a copy of Eldrick, since Eldrick was very influential in the 80s. And this game is like early 90s, I think, or even late 80s. Uh, and you've got a, he's got a magic sword. You've got to visit Erdrick's tomb and get his magical sword. And uh, he's sort of a reoccurring figure in the Dragon Warrior series. So just a little trivia there. Stephen Curtis, laughing at the turn was not an elf joke. Uh, Since Ned and his companion at the Tower of Joy represent the Night's Watch fighting the others, does Howland saving Ned give us any clues as to what went on in the original War for the Dawn? And I think, and this is not my idea, Howland saving Ned is basically a version of the Children of the Forest helping the last hero, if Ned's playing the last hero. Because we're told that he received aid from the Children of the Forest after he was basically about to be killed and all his companions were killed. And here we've got Howland Reed, obviously the Cranog men are implied as part children of the forest and he's helping last hero figure Ned somehow. So I'm looking forward to seeing, obviously everyone's looking forward to seeing what happened at the tower of joy. But one of the things that it will show us is maybe a clue about what it is that the children of the forest did to help the last hero. So that is the parallel there potentially. And I just have to say, I, I agree with that completely. Is the the Howland Reed was absolutely uh, key uh, to not just what was going on in the Tower of Joy, but all of the whole build up to Robert's rebellion. And and I think this was all driven through Bloodraven. So actually, it's not just we have the Cranach men as being uh, people who are in touch with it. Uh, this was actually him being uh, the tool of the weirwoods of the children of the forest. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see if, what do you think Howland might, let's attack it the other way. What do you think Howland might've done to help Ned at the tower of joy? Well, I think that he, uh, uh, well, afterwards, I think during the battle itself, uh, if there was a battle, and I'm still not entirely convinced that there was a battle, uh, but but uh, after the battle, um, uh, I think that he would have been instrumental in bringing down the Tower of Joy and effectively covering the tracks and so allowing the whole sort of elaborate plot to sort of go forward from that point. During the, the, the confrontation on whatever that is, I could certainly imagine that uh, that he would just be sort of one of many swords in there, but his value was not as a swords person, as we saw uh, with the, the, the Night of the Laughing Tree incident up at Harren Hall. Uh, so I don't think that he would have been there to uh, actually be doing the fighting. I think he's doing the sort of the mopping up and the, the cover up afterwards. Well, you're not a fan of the Howland Reed blow dart theory? I mean... <laughs> what about magic? Did he have some magic to use, maybe? or? I mean, he could have done... I mean, the... 
I, to be honest, I think the whole thing about the Tower of Joy, it's deliberately been left a mystery for us. Oh, yeah, we don't, sure. <laughs> we, we, we don't, we don't know. And yes, he could have come there with a blow dart. He could have done some great sleep spell over the lot of them. He could have like opened up his little bag and out popped a whole load of children of the forest who just jabbed the people's kneecaps for a while. I don't know. And I think that deliberately that's the, that's, that's the way it's been set up. Uh, what he was not doing was lots of good fighting what he was there to do was lots of good covering stuff up afterwards how what do you mean covering stuff up so uh the there's a lot of weird stuff going on at the tower of joy obviously but this idea that uh, that the two survivors being uh, ned and howland uh in possession of a screaming baby pulled down an entire tower brick by brick uh, and then uh, put those bricks and made them into cairns for all these bodies. That, that's a ridiculously massive undertaking for, uh, for, for two people uh, without any kind of modern machinery. Uh, that has to have been some kind of magic if that actually happened. Yeah, there's something doesn't add up, that's for sure. Um... It's sort of a black hole of speculation until we find out. It's one of the least hinted about things that there is. Like, there's, I mean, I'm looking for parallels all the time. I don't really have any idea about what happened at the Tower of Joy as of yet. Uh, but let's see, there's another couple of questions here. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on how exactly Ned defeats Sir Dane at the Tower of Joy. I'm working on how the sadness he feels upon reoccurring memory or story of the event is. Uh, to, uh, correlated to Bran's acknowledgement, not necessarily feeling of sadness in his POV. Um, yeah, so Bran was saying, oh, you know, father would get sad and he wouldn't say any more. So why is why is Ned sad? What is it about this? Because I raised the point of like, you know, why would the Danes name Edric after Ned if he killed Arthur Dane and was any sort of part in a Shara Dane committing suicide? Like, there's obviously a big missing piece there. What do you think about the Ned Dane part of that? Well, I don't think Ashara Dane committed suicide to okay. start with. All right. uh, uh, I think uh, that uh, one aspect that we don't think about hugely is the fact that what Ned was doing when he was uh, taking on uh, the child is not just honouring the promise that, uh, that Liana made him make, but he was also honouring... Uh, the the vows of the Kingsguard who are there, because their vows are to protect that child. And so what he was doing was that whatever happened around that, he was actually effectively saying, you know what, you can't do this anymore, but I am going to take on that role of protecting the true king, as it were. So, so he is actually taking on Arthur Dane's role going forwards uh even though arthur dane it would appear is uh, was was killed in the incident so maybe like you picture arthur dane laying there mortally wounded and then he's telling ned you've got to protect the child or something like that i i could certainly i mean i at some point in a couple of months i'm going to look into this in real detail and come down to a firm conclusion on it but i could okay, certainly cool. see that yes there's a he re, the, ned returned the sword uh yes there was uh, some whole scandal there that i i imagine that the scandal was is is more to do with 
Brandon Stark than uh, than Ned Stark uh, uh, with Ashara Dane. I think he kept that bit all covered up. I think that he, uh, yes, there's a very good chance that that uh, Arthur Dane might have said, "Okay, so I'm you know, on his deathbed, lying there, saying you've got to, you've taken this into your own hands. You've now got to look after this child because this is." can you take this vow on for me? Uh, because effectively, that's what he was charged to do by Rhaegar. Uh, his best friend said, uh, I charge you, no matter what happens, no matter what you hear about what's going on in the war, no matter who's king, you have to look after this child. Uh, and I could certainly imagine that Arthur Dane could do this kind of like uh, uh, promise me Ned speech again there. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the other part that I'm convinced the other part of of the magic that Howland Reed did was the sort of the making a lot of this disappear in Ned's mind. I don't think he actually, we saw some of it in a fever dream, but I think a lot of it was also muddled up in his mind even before that. Very cool. I am stoked to see your full theory on that for sure. I'll be eagerly awaiting that. So that's coming pretty soon, you said? Uh, I think realistically it'll be the other side of the Westworld season two because I'm going to be focusing a bit of time doing some of that as well as my keeping on uh, with Game of Thrones but uh, for for trying to get my head around uh, what is one of the key bits of of, of uh, a song of ice and fire that we don't yet understand I think I just need to focus on it so I imagine that'll probably be the other side of season two of Westworld. Cool. Well, uh, something to look forward to, everyone. And it looks like we are at about our time. I didn't even get halfway through the questions. Sorry, guys. I'll figure out a way to go back and uh, answer some of these online or something like that. Emilio sneaking in a super chat at the end. Do I think Ned was the one to tell Barristan the suicide abortion cover-up? Could well be. Yes, that could be. Could be. Because Barristan is a little, little, little miffed at Stark's little but he likes he likes ned he thought ned was honorable okay yeah the the brandon thing is curious to see how how brandon figures into any of this so we'll have to see well robert this time went by so fast uh i definitely would like to have you on again and i know you said like to have me back so we'll definitely be doing stuff in the future we've only scratched sorry for somehow i gravitated towards like some of my most esoteric ideas to throw at you which isn't really (laughs) the best but whatever. So you did great. And I know everyone was thrilled to have you on. So go ahead and just shout out your channel real quick before we take off. Uh, well, thank you. As I say, it was a complete honor. I would love to come back on. And uh, we've talked about it before, having you back on uh, in a few weeks as a live stream on my channel. Uh, my channel is In Deep Geek. Uh, I look at Game of Thrones and Westworld. Uh, I try to get uh, into the deep theory about what's actually going on, not just the sort of the, the, the superficial level, but actually trying to get some real logic theories going going on there. So do check me out in Deep Geek, uh, as well as YouTube. I'm in all the usual places if you want to find me on Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram. Awesome. And of course, I recommend in Deep Geek very strongly. Uh, I've favorably compared you to History of Westeros's Aziz, for sort of doing a good job of blending a very logical approach with still sort of realizing that it's fantasy and that there's a magic and that it's not like that logical, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's good because I think that George does operate like somewhat rationally, uh, but given that it's fantasy and not science fiction, he's not sort of constrained by, you know, logistics over much. Like the wall is too tall 
to really even stand up, it would just fall over. But whatever, it doesn't. It's, it's it, internal consistency is the yeah. phrase. It has huge internal consistency, and that's that's where the logic lies. Be- that's a good way of putting it. And all of your theories are 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 like that. It's like the 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 conclusion is exciting and it involves magic, but it's not doesn't feel like tinfoil at all because you always get there with a very logical sort of step-by-step approach. So that's what I think you do best and you cover a lot of topics. So recommend the channel very highly. And folks, I'm, as I'm talking right here, I think I'm, I think I'm going to go ahead and schedule another live stream, possibly next week or two weeks from now to go back. Cause there's more blood of the other stuff that we didn't get to talk about. We didn't get into the wolf's den stuff at all. And I do actually want to spend like half an hour talking about the wolf's den. Um, so Stay tuned for that. I'll, I'm probably going to schedule another live stream. Con of Thrones is coming up at the end of uh, May. And so I've got a fair amount of preparation to do. So between now and the end of May, there will probably only be one scripted mythical astronomy episode, probably about a month from now. And that's going to be the one about Ned and Winterfell. And I think I might fit in another live stream before then, just so we can talk about some of this. So stay tuned. Thanks, everyone, for coming in. Thanks for all the super chats. Very generous of you guys. Thanks for all the patrons, and thanks for you guys that just watch and spread the word and just form part of our great community where people like me and Robert can hang out and nerd out and geek out and all the rest. So take care. Thanks, Robert, for coming on, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.